Let me make sure I do what I'm supposed to do. All right, we're good. Oh, it's been a rough week for me. I'm going to be honest with you. It was Monday. I woke up. I had a little bit of congestion. I was like, I think I'll be okay. And as Monday progressed, I just started to nosedive. And Tuesday, I got sent home from work. I text Trace. I was like, Trace, I either got the flu or a virus that mimics the flu, but it's cool. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be good on Sunday. And then Wednesday was bad, Thursday was bad, Friday, and I was like, ah, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know how this is going to play out. And so Friday, I, I, I finally was feeling okay enough to start writing a sermon. And then Saturday, and this is, let me, this is not how you want to do this, but I'm just being honest up front, right? Uh, and then Saturday comes around, and I finally start feeling good about two hours before the Christmas Eve service. Come to the Christmas Eve service, and then I was like, i got to change everything. i got to go back and change everything. So I went home, and I changed everything and sent Trace new slides, and here we are today. I think I have a lot of good information, a lot of good uh, things that we can really apply to our lives, but I do want to let you know, and, and this is what my wife said too, that it's choppy, okay? <laughs> it's not polished as it should be. So that being said, I want to quickly go over what I'm going to talk about so you can know this up front, and then I'm going to pray and we'll begin today. So... There's a lot of foreshadowing. Now, the typical thing to do would, would be to preach on, on Luke chapter 2 today. But I already know that Trace told you all to read that every day the past week, so there's no need to. You know it's as good as anyone else. So I wanted to talk about the foreshadowing from the beginning that points to Christ as the Messiah, the one who would come. And that's what we're going to focus on. So there's four foreshadowing events in Genesis that are well known that I'm going to briefly go over and talk about. Then I'm going to talk about Abraham because it's important to know the character of who God used in that, this circumstance. And then we're going to go into Genesis chapter 15, which I think is the most foretelling event in Genesis foreshadowing the Messiah. So before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that we can celebrate the birth of Christ, that we can see that you are a God of love, a God who had a plan from the beginning. For when we fell, you were there to catch us. It's not by anything we can do, Lord, but by what you have done through your great love and through the sending of your son, which we celebrate today. Without him, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, but through him we feel life. And so today, Lord, let us come to you with a humble spirit, a thankful spirit, knowing that you are there for us and that you have made a way when there was no way we could make ourselves. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Augustine said, The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. A better way to say this is, Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in, is in Jesus revealed. There are so many instances in the Old Testament of prophecies, signs, and divine workings of God that set the stage for the coming of the Messiah. Today, while we celebrate the birth of the Messiah, I want to take you back to the beginning and look at Genesis for the signs of his coming. The birth is a time of celebration, but we must remember that if Christ doesn't die and raise from the grave, then we are dead in our sins. Do you know the first time that Jesus is mentioned in the Bible? I'm not talking about the name Jesus. I'm talking about anything 
alluding to Christ, period. Okay, not all at once. That's okay. If you actually answered it, we'll throw it off. I was trying to do like we do here, but that's good. You could say that. In the beginning, God. But I would say it's in Genesis 1.26 that we can know for sure. For it states, let us make man in our image. Us. Well, the actual verse. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In the creation before this, it is God created the birds of the air. God created the fish of the sea. But when we get down to the creation of man for the first time, God is not using the singular. It's the usage of a plural tense here where it says, let us make. Other references of the plural usage referencing God found in Genesis is found in Genesis 3.22 where it says, behold, the man has become like one of us. And Genesis 11.7, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. This is the first example in Genesis of foreshadowing. So we know that God is, is, you know, this is the first instance of the Trinity. Now that's very complex to, to put out here, but God is not referring to himself in the singular tense there. Alright? So that's the first one. The second one, which is probably the most, one of the most common ones you'll see, is found in Genesis 3. The Lord has had a conversation with the man, with the serpent, and with the woman. So he tells the man, you will work the grounds, it will be hard. He tells the woman, you will have pain and childbearing. And then he's talking to the serpent, and he says, you will uh, um, go around on the ground on your belly. And then at the end, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This, mean, this is a foretelling, a meaning that Jesus will crush Satan, but he will suffer in the process. An injury to the heel hurts, but an injury to the, to the head kills. The third example of foreshadowing is a genealogy or the lineage of the Messiah in which he would come from. We know that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. For Abraham, we can look at Genesis. Now, I'll, the next slide that's come up, I want to tell you what, what I'm going to do here. It's got a list of verses. So the ones on the left, all right, are Genesis for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. On the right are the ones where you can see that they're fulfilled within the New Testament. Although I'm not reading all of those on the New Testament, I wanted this slide because I know some of y'all write down everything like me, and I'm trying to fly through this part. All right. So for Abraham, we can look at Genesis 12:3. It says, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed for Isaac. We can look at Genesis 17:19. God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. For Jacob, 
we can look at Genesis 28:14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread about to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we can see the fulfillment of all three of these promises in Genesis in Luke 3:34, which states, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, in reference to the genealogy of Jesus. From the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come the Savior of the world. And through that, we have been blessed. The whole reason that the Gospel of Matthew is at the front of the New Testament is because of the genealogy that it starts out with. If all the prophecies given in Genesis didn't line up, then nothing else would matter. All you have to do is find one error here to debunk the whole thing. A quote by Eric Lutz says this, Genealogies were a deeply integral part of Jewish society at the time of Jesus. Land was inherited based on family lines, and those who could not prove their ancestry in Israel were considered outsiders. Without your last name, there was nothing. I think about even how far it goes into the, uh, if you watch some of the medieval shows, they're like, who are you? And it's like, I'm Nick, son of Ronald, grandson of, of George. It's like, okay, but do I call you all that or do I call you Nick? So that in itself shows you how far that family line and how important that was in carrying up. If you go back even further, it was very important to state who you were from and what family line you belonged to. God needed his people to recognize that Jesus' lineage perfectly aligned up with all the prophecies, all the lessons, and all the signs. When we look at Luke 2, we can see that Jesus' earthly heritage descends from a patriarchal ancestors that I've already mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and further down the line, beyond what can be mentioned in the time that we have today. But ultimately, Jesus' lengthy genealogy in the book of Luke reflects the same prophesied ancestors of the Messiah mentioned throughout the Old Testament, including Genesis and from creation. So, so far, we have gotten the mention of us, the plural. We've gotten he will crush the head and you will bruise the heel. Satan will strike, but Jesus will conquer. All right, we've got the genealogy lined up. The fourth one that we have is an event found in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham takes Isaac to the mountains of Moriah to sacrifice him. Genesis 22, 7 through 8 says this. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. And we know that just as Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, the Lord did indeed provide. The foreshadowing of the lamb who was slain for the sins of mankind. Have you ever had one of those moments where someone just says, trust me? But as you look around, it doesn't make sense. There's no way that you can plausibly see that what they're saying to trust is going to happen. 
I have people I work with, and I'm like, hey, I really need this done. It's, it's got to be done. They're like, oh, I got it. Trust me. And then they like go back to playing Candy Crush, and I, it makes me nervous. I'm not sure if we're going to get what we need to get done. And in high school, when we were first like 16 to 17, I think gas was still like around 3 or $4 at this time, but we, were, we didn't have a lot of money, and so, uh, you know, our parents would give us like $10 to last us for the night. So you got to go to Taco Bell, there's seven, and then you got like 282 for gas, and so we were like filling up our cars at like 282, and I've never had to just completely let go and trust people than seeing everybody's car on E, knowing that we are probably in a place we do not need to be, and they're like, I got this, just trust me. Those are little, little things regarding trust, but when you think about the trust that Abraham had to have, when he said that to his son, knowing what God had said to him, God is going to provide a lamb for the sacrifice. I also want to pause for a moment now that we've gone over four different quick examples and talk about Abraham as a person before we go into the passage today. Since he is the main element along with God, most of what's going to happen is a a conversation and actions between Abraham and God. We forget that while they were, they were giants in many ways, a lot of these characters. They were also very human. In fact, before we look at the faith of a man like Abraham, we need to realize that he was, like all believers, far from perfect. Yet he was chosen to do God's work. We have an early indication of Abraham's flaws in Genesis 12. Abraham had been called by God to go to a land which the Lord himself chose. He had obeyed in an act that required real faith. But once in the land, Abraham's faith was shaken by the famine. Rather than trust God or wait for further direction, he went to Egypt. There, he continued to show a lack of trust by getting Sarah to tell a half-truth about their relationship and to deny that she was his wife. Fear that he might be killed outweighed his commitment to his wife. Even when she was taken into Pharaoh's household, Abram did not reveal their relationship. Instead, he profited in silence from the favor extended to the supposed brother. Abraham's tendency to rely on his wits rather than on God also is shown in the events leading up to the birth of Ishmael. How many times have I been in that? Relying on my wits, which usually let me down, instead of relying on God. The birth of Ishmael jeopardized the entire lineage of the Messiah, trying to take things into his own hands. And he's the first name. He is the name. Some ten years passed while Abraham waited for God to send the son he had promised. Finally, Sarah began to urge him to take her maid as a secondary wife. Even though this was a custom in the land, it took Sarah's nagging to make him take action. Perhaps Abram thought it would help God keep his promise, like he needed to be that one to help God. Perhaps he felt that 86 was just too old to wait any longer. In any case, Abram did not consult God. He simply went ahead without direction, relying on his own plan to fulfill God's purposes. 
Self-reliance and self-effort took the place of trust in God. And then, how stunning, Abraham repeated the sin that he did in Egypt. Again, Abraham misrepresented Sarah as only his sister. And she was placed in the harem of a king named Abimelech. God protected Sarah even though her husband was not willing to. And before Abimelech came to her, God spoke to him in a vision. Now Abimelech, fearful of the divine visit, complained to Abraham that he might have led the king into an unknowing sin. Abraham's reply was weak. Abraham was worried, afraid that the people of a foreign land that they visited might not fear God and thus might kill him for his wife, Sarah. Abraham feared for his life but not for his wife. Abraham apparently had not stopped to think that though a particular people might not know God, God knew them. There was no place that Abraham could go to be beyond the protection of the Lord. Yet, even after an earlier rebuke in Egypt, Abraham repeated the same sin and let fear and selfishness control his choices. Yet, this is the man who God protected and first revealed his willingness to be broken for the saving of the world, as we will see in the passage today. So, the first mention of the us in Genesis 1, the crushing of the head in Genesis 3, the lineage of the Messiah, the unwillingness to sacrifice, or the willingness to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, are all glimpses of the foreshadowing of Christ within the Old Testament and specifically within Genesis. And while these are often talked about, I want to focus on one that is sometimes overlooked. That's Genesis 15. We're going to start in verse 7, but before I'll just go give you a quick summary of verses 1 through 6. In these verses, essentially it's a conversation between Abram. Uh, So Abram and Abraham, we know Abram later becomes Abraham. So if you hear me say those... In this chapter, he's still Abram. Uh, So Abram and God, they're having a conversation in which God is telling Abram what he is going to do. All right. And Abram and how Abram will be blessed. And Abram is struggling to understand how and why, since he does not have an heir. He doesn't have a son. He's saying a servant in my household will be my heir. So let's pick up with verse seven. And he said to him. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur from the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. First of all, this is the way of God reminding Abram who he is and what he has done for him so far. With verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove. And a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So, real quick, I want to talk about Old Testament sacrifices, and I'll do it in a, a PG setting because we have little elves in the room. In, in there, you can see what it says that there, the animals would be split in half. And so what would happen is you would have the halves on each side and you would have two parties that would stand opposite of each other. 
and they would walk through the middle in a figure eight, which, as you know today, the sideways, we have the sideways figure out, figure eight, which means infinity in most terms. So they're walking through this, they would walk through this in a figure eight. And so there was a couple things that were being said when they would do these covenants. One is, this agreement is forever. Two, if one of us should break this covenant, we are to look like this animal. It is a blood-binding covenant. You walk through the blood. If you break this, it, you owe your life for breaking a covenant. And it lasts forever. There are no take-backs. This is not a pinky promise. This is the ultimate agreement that you can make. Just something to keep in mind as we go forward here. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold... Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Abram, in this time, he was realizing the magnitude of what was about to take place. We just talked about the seriousness of what a covenant is. He is about to make a covenant with God. You know, talk about the odds stacked against you. He knows the kind of person. He's aware of all these things. And so the weight of what is about to happen is starting to come on to him. It was heavy. He was scared. How do you enter a covenant with a perfect God? Abram was going into a blood-binding covenant with God that can be broken only by death. Where else in the Bible does darkness fall upon the land for entering a covenant? How about the new covenant? In Mark 15:33, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Right after that, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A foreshadowing of when God would make his final blood covenant and become like the animals broken that day. Then the Lord said to Abram in verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. I can't. You know, I'm from Alabama. I struggle with a lot of words in the Bible. Let's just be honest. So I just, sometimes I just send it. Just let it go. You know? <laughs> in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the whole time we see Abram questioning. We see Abram fearful. Abram under a great weight. And the whole time God is like, alright, so here's what I'm going to do for you. Alright, so here's what I've already done for you. Okay, so let me foretell some more about everything that's going to happen in your life. You're going to die in an old age. Don't, you don't have to worry about that. Wouldn't that be nice to know up front? He's giving all this, and Abram's like fearful and just kind of like shrinking into himself as this is going on. But here's the most important verse. Possibly one of the most important verses in Genesis. I don't know if you're really supposed to have one, but to me, this is the most important verse in Genesis, period. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the covenant. But Abram did not pass through the animals. Abram did not enter the covenant. Abram did not pass through the sacrifice. Abram 
was never willing to be broken like the sacrifices. But God was. God was willing to provide a way when Abram could not logically conceive one for himself. This has always been one of the thoughts in the back of my head on Christmas Day, especially in light of of Genesis 15. God has brought a miracle, Messiah, into the world in which we should rejoice. But at the back of all this is really a story of God's love. God brought a son into the world whose life was short-lived, whose ministry was short-lived, but whose death saved the entire human race for those who believe. And he knew about it from Genesis 1.26. He confirmed it in Genesis 3 and 15. He brought forth the Messiah in Luke 2. And so when you read Luke 2, when you celebrate God's love and the birth of our Messiah, may you also remember that God can always find a way through anyone He chooses, any means He chooses, and any time He chooses. Because He was, He is, and He will always be a God who makes a way when we cannot make our own way. There's one story I want to use to close this in here. Because here's the thing. I think about, from Genesis, God knowing at some point, while everybody else in the Old Testament is making these sacrifices for him to to bring themselves right, he knows that he himself will have to make this sacrifice at some point. And so I heard this, uh, this is not mine, this is a fantastic illustration, definitely not mine. In fact, I remember uh, another time I was on the ship and I I didn't have a lot of time to... uh, Prepare the sermon. It seems to be a trend. I think it's a me problem. I'm going to work on that. But I, I really went on Google and I Googled, what is the number one illustration for a preacher? Or something like this. And this is the one that came about. And so I want to put you in there. When we look from the beginning, I want you to try to imagine this is God's thought process. And then what's even more incredible is if God knows he's making this from the beginning, look at how we acted from that point forward. This is very heavy. So there is a man... He worked on a bridge. He did two separate things. He would close the bridge so the train could cross. He would open the bridge so the boats could pass by through the water. It was very simple. He would have a schedule. He could see it. So he knew what to do. One button. Press the button this way. Press the button that way. He had a son at home. His son said, Dad, I want to come see the trains. I want to come see the boats. I want to come to your job. And so after the child would continuously beg him for time, he finally got to the point where he said, okay, son, I'm going to take you. Maybe the kid was sick, maybe something like that, but he was able to take the child to his work. So he takes the child to his work. His kid loves it. He's hanging out in the booth. He's going outside. He's waving at the trains as they go by. Uh, He's just having a great time. So it starts to get dark. The dad can see on the schedule, I have one train left to go. All right? So... As it starts getting dark, fog sets in. He can see the lights off in the distance. So he presses the button, starts getting his stuff ready. He's like, this is it. We can go home after this. Presses the button. But this time something happens. The bridge won't lock all the way. So the dad says, no big deal. There's a manual lever on the other side. All I have to do is run across the bridge real quick, pull it down. The bridge will be locked tight. We go home. It's happened before. It's not a big deal. So he looks at his son. He says, son, stay here. I'll be right back. 
He runs across the bridge. The train's getting closer and closer. He goes to hit the lever. He's trying to pull the lever down. He's pulling as much as he can. This time, the lever's not working for him either. He can't get it to lock. He can't get it to do. So he finally is pulling as hard as he can, and he pulls it down, and he hears it click. And at the same time, he hears the one thing you don't want to hear. Daddy, Daddy, wait for me, wait for me. As his son, as he looks, his son's running across the bridge after he told him to stay. And so the dad, in this moment, has a split-second decision because the train is close now. He either holds the handle down, knowing his son's probably not going to make it off the bridge, or he lets the lever go, and the train's going to hit the tracks and fall down into the water below with mass casualties. As the father held down the lever, as the train passed by, with the passengers on the train, unsuspecting of what had just taken place. That's the closest that I can give you of any illustration that can put you into the thought process of God the Father and sending His Son. So while we celebrate the birth of Christ today, at the back end of that is God's love. Because Jesus was brought into this world with a very specific purpose. And that purpose is so we can all sit here today completely free. Completely paid. So, we do celebrate. We celebrate because God is good. Because God has paved the way for us. Praise be to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time today. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the birth. Thank you that you are a God of love who is willing to send him for us. May we come to you clean, white as snow, so you may see us as your children. May we all accept Christ. If we're drifting away, Lord, bring us back. Help us to be more attentive. Help us to put you at the forefront as we go into the new year. Help us to remember all the great things that you have done for us and the love that you have for us. And so even when we are beaten down and broken, we know that you will never forsake us or leave us. But instead, you have done all that you needed to do for us. And so we can always have peace and hope because no matter what we go through here, you have prepared a place for us where there will never be the agony and pain and suffering that we may see here, Lord. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the birth of your son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.